0: if you look at lp 7 uh you got isn't it a pity take 14 2nd of june isn't it a pity take 27 the 3rd of june so i find it amazing that he did so many takes of particular songs you know the band was so great it it was they were definitely working the songs and you know thank god because they did so many takes and I don't think there's any other album that he did that, where they did so many takes but we were just left with so much material on this one because they were really crafting the songs as they went you can see every little handwritten note everything he was really really wanted this to be a great record
1: Welcome to this week's Monday News Fab. I'm Ed Chan.
2: And I'm John Stone.
1: Well, we've actually had a week here where there wasn't too much big news. Nothing going on
2: except the summer.
1: And we've got our winter all filled out, it looks like.
2: Right. Do you think they looked at their business calendar and said, Oh my gosh, there's like a, a week in August we've got nothing going on. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, uh, there, there's one thing I did want to mention. Uh, a couple of weeks back, the harpist uh, from "She's Leaving Home" passed away, Sheila Bromberg. Uh, she had appeared with Ringo on TV in the '80s, and, and this was the first time they'd actually met, which I thought was kind of amusing. You
0: meet Ringo, oh, sure. Hey, Oh, met the two of us good, now. They Ringo didn't is the boss of his new band, the All-Star Band. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure we could find a spot for you there. Well, and, uh, you know, yeah. for a small fee. Yeah, a small yeah fee I'll give you, I'll give you as much as you got last time. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about that. How much did you get? Nine quid. Nine oh, quid. that's ridiculous. <laughs> Nine pounds for Nine playing quid. the opening to one of the most famous yeah. songs in the world. Well, I've never had yeah. a penny piece since. Okay, yeah. and now how did that pay compare to other people that you worked? with? Because you met with Sammy Davis Jr, didn't you, for Yes, I did. Well, that was a concert. That was at the Kilburn How much did you get for a concert in those days? In those days, oh, a lot of money. About £7.50. Yeah. So the Beatles were pretty good paid, is not We all were paid. <laughs> you got me £1.50. He ring though, <laughs> isn't <laughs> he?
2: You would think he would have attended that session, but maybe not.
1: They made a big point. Oh, well, we've never actually met. And they were just, you know, sitting around, <laughs> acting nice for the TV cameras. Right. The, the harp and She's Leaving Home, that's that's a big part of the song, and it is a little humbling to realize that she was the very first woman ever to appear on a Beatles record.
2: Yeah, good part.
1: All right, so we're going to move on to the last disc of All Things Must Pass. We, we made it through, and we actually made it through pretty much one disc a week.
2: Yeah, and this was a, a, a good disc. You know?
1: If you look at the descriptions, Danny says that what he wanted to do was he wanted to present... You know, the early versions, the singer-songwriter versions, which I think certainly day one and day two are. Right. And
2: this is more intermediate, although there are a couple of take ones.
1: The band is still learning the song, but for the most part, they've at least picked up how things go so they can play it through. Right. There's a couple of little joke things throughout. <laughs> but it's still much more organized than the Lennon Jams and Sessions disc was.
2: Yes. Some cool pieces here and there interesting versions which we'll get to as we talk
1: so the disc starts out with a joke version of uh, isn't it a pity take 14 (laughs) 53 seconds
2: right because he breaks down he's kind of coming up with a verse parodying his own song
1: isn't it a pain how we do so many takes now we're doing it again (laughs) but on take 14 that seems a little early to be doing that Right. But,
2: you know, if they're just doing, as they're working each take, each pass is going to be a different take. So take 14 could still be relatively early in the whole process, particularly with Phil Spector involved.
1: <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, Spector is well known for, before they even roll tape, he'd do a 100 takes or something that, that aren't on tape. So this may well be take 114.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah, and he tended to drive people. And Harrison is kind of complaining about it, but being funny.
1: It's my session, so I'm free to bitch about it if I want
2: to. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I'm with you, lads. We'll do it again.
1: The next song is Take One of Wawa.
2: With the Wawa guitar prominent. I like this version.
1: I like George's vocal here. Yes. It's more of a pleading vocal than George sang on any of the other versions. Right. It's almost kind of like John's lead vocal in Help. The thing that
2: got my attention was the fact that there are a lot of cool little guitar parts going on in this song that basically got obliterated in the final arrangement. When you're doing a George Harrison album, his guitar playing is a big part of it, and he comes up with cool parts, and those parts kind of go away in the, in the final arrangement between the horns and the big choruses backup vocals, you know, they all kind of go away. I was not even aware of some of these parts.
1: Well, because they're completely inaudible. And, you know, not just that, you got Eric freaking clapped in there. And a lot of Eric's playing also gets washed out of the mix. Right.
2: Yeah, I don't know what survived in the final take, but I like this version of it.
1: Obviously, given the way they recorded, the horns and the guitars were actually probably playing together live.
2: I can't really speak to that because I don't really know.
1: That's why some isolated tracks would have been nice, Danny. But
2: (laughs) Yes. I have an arranger's disc where you hear some of the horn parts isolated and taken away.
1: Track three is a take five of I'd Have You Anytime. Without a lot of the
2: reverbs that are part of the final version, it takes on a more intimate type of sound.
1: What I really dig out of this is Ringo's playing. The drums are to the fore, maybe too much to the fore, but I I, you know, I just love the fact that we can hear what he's playing, and he is blasting away.
2: As much as you can do in, in that kind of song, he definitely has an active part, and I don't know whether the mixing of it is due to Paul Hicks and danny changing something or whether that's just kind of the way the mix was left because it's an early take
1: yeah sure it also wasn't just a stereo mix they had multi-tracks to work from, yes
2: so. yes they did i guess what i'm saying is i don't know what the philosophy was when they mixed it because you know when you're doing a remix of all things was past or any of these records you're using the original released mix as a template so you know where things are kind of placed and levels of things. But with demos and alternate versions, what are you going for? Are you going for what was there on the original tape? Are you remixing something to a a large degree? I just don't know.
1: This song would have been served real well by an element style mix. You know, not all these tracks necessarily need, here's part A, here's part B, here's part C. But Pulling out the drums, a guitar, and the lead vocal, it would have been nice. Yeah. And I think that they're separate enough that they could have done that.
2: Yeah, I would think, yeah. It's just a choice not to do that.
1: Yeah, exactly. Track four is uh, Take One of Art of Dying.
2: Right. Probably is somewhat close to what the original idea was. I just keep listening to it thinking, how would this have gone down in 1966 for the Beatles pop group? they still were you know it's a different kind of tune lyric wise
1: i don't think it would have worked on revolver it probably wouldn't have worked on pepper the place that would have shown up is either magical mystery tour or the yellow submarine soundtrack that yeah, could be that would be more apropos what interested me is just how much george got into the drums you know telling ringo that what he wants one, two, three, four. Oh, actually, there should be a thing on the beginning which i forgot all
0: about. Just Ringo, just one, two, three. Pop, doom, do You know, just a, one beat. You know what I mean? One, two, three, pop. Yeah, that's it. That's it.
1: Okay, here we go. One, two, one, two. wow, that's not really something that I would have thought that George would have thought about.
2: Well, I think the normal inclination is to start a song with the song. You know, you don't necessarily begin with the drums unless you specifically decide to do that. And that's what George wanted.
1: Now, the final version doesn't start with the drums, but it does still come in with that single drum beat. His guitars and other things before, and then the drums come in, but they come in with that single drum beat. Right. The
2: big Eric Clapton guitar isn't there at that point.
1: And I think George was probably still singing off a lyric sheet because he seems to lose his place a couple times.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think he he actually changes uh, a line. Our desire to be the line is normally a perfect entity, but he says.
1: Brought back by a desire to
2: be The perfect cup of tea Which is very funny. <laughs> right. At that point, he's decided that this vocal isn't the one. <laughs>
1: There are a couple of these that might have worked as final vocals, but for the most part, but he knows that these are all more or less scratch vocals. Right. It's back to what am I doing here? I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to phrase it and you know what sort of feeling I want to put into this song all the way through.
2: Yeah, you know, Harrison definitely was a musical craftsman and he worked things out. And the thing that strikes me most about this whole set is where he started from with these songs and where he ended up with the release of all things was passed. It's almost to some degree, like he spent time knocking off a lot of the rough edges. I mean, his vocals were much smoother. Maybe that's Bill Spector's influence, but they were smoother in the end result. But these songs have a rougher quality, which actually I like. And maybe that's just personal taste, but I'm just kind of aware that he's chipping away like marble knocking off the rough edges
1: yeah and that's going to happen given the way that they mix these things I mean these uh, takes in particular the when they can bring the vocal as far forward as they as as is possible and then they leave the vocal very dry you're gonna hear every imperfection
2: right because these aren't finished. Things, but but his the use of his voice a lot of times in these songs or these versions uh, is much more engaging from my point of view. Um, and so, I
1: think he's telling the band something with the way he's doing his vocals. It's like you know, you know, this is kind of the feeling I want put into it. I'll get my vocals later, but but here's how I want you to be playing the song. You know, unlike Paul, it's like play it like this. It's like you know, That's right. Listen to my singing and then play along with it.
2: Yeah, yeah. But as I said, I I, I just ended up for the most part liking his lyric, his uh, vocal style through a lot of this, which didn't survive to the end. So, yeah,
1: they're different things. I mean, yeah. as you note, I mean, uh, the the final record is is the final record, and while it's good to have, you know, at least a bit more of the uh, rough edges added back because the vocals are now, even the final vocals are, are now uh, a bit more up front and a bit drier. You know, before you couldn't really hear any of those edges; it was all just part of this of the wall of sound. Correct. So yeah. and, and now you can at least hear a little bit of that. But yes, George worked hard to make everything smooth. Right,
2: it shows up even more in a, a later song.
1: Next is "Isn't It a Pity?" Take twenty-seven. We had talked, I guess, last week or the week before about how George had commented that, "Oh, well, maybe Frank Sinatra will want this song." Yes, this version, the the MOR version. This is almost one that I could have seen Sinatra covering. If he gave it to Frank in this style, Frank might have considered it. It's got a real almost lounge feel. Right.
2: Though, you know, in looking at it, I'm not sure lyrically how this would fit in Sinatra's canon
1: lyrically it's not a song that frank would ever sing but the song itself i'll give it to somebody he else one of my guys to, to write some lyrics about jack and ladies and you know <laughs> all that sort of stuff
2: right the rat pack life
1: <laughs> exactly
2: you know this song is really right in the middle of the two versions that are on all things must pass it's not as bare as the second version
1: Are there any drums at all on it? You know, there's certainly a tambourine and there's some percussion, but I I don't hear much by way of drums on, on the whole track. No, I
2: don't think so.
1: The other thing that this kind of reminds me of, although it's completely different, is the Nina Simone cover. Child, isn't it a pity? How we break each other's hearts. And cause each other pain
2: Right, you mentioned that. I think there's a connection with another song of Harrison's regarding Nina Simone.
1: Well, first off, if the folks out there haven't listened to it, it is long, but it is a tremendous cover. I mean, you know, Nina Simone just has that voice. Right. And she uses it to full effect in her cover of this song.
2: Right. I believe she was in the uh, the recent Hulu special about the music festival in Harlem.
1: Part of a new documentary called Summer of Soul, directed by the one
2: and only Questlove. So she would have been just coming off of that <laughs> during these sessions. Uh, but uh, yeah, and then he kind of, they returned the favor.
1: George was fond of Nina Simone's cover. And he turned around, and uh, when he recorded the answers at the end, he's picked up that same arrangement for that song.
2: Right. It all comes around. There's this
0: sort of Victorian thing written on the wall of the house I live in. In fact, I get a lot of songs off the wall. (laughs) Or a lot of my songs are off the wall. Anyway, this was, I think it's an old Victorian poem or something it said scan not a friend with a microscopic glass you know his faults let the foibles pass life is an enigma true my friend read on read on the answers at the end so that always stuck in my mind it seemed like a song to me and uh, it ended up as one
1: track six is take two of if not for you very jaunty <laughs> Yeah, the, the opening almost reminds me of uh, Against the Wind by, by Bob Seger in the Silver Bullet Band.
2: <laughs> right, yeah. Just
1: the opening, not the full arrangement. But it's like, you know, the, the first, oh twenty 20 seconds of it, it's like, uh, this is George?
2: Yeah, yeah. It seems more aimed at am.
1: <laughs> all in all, this was this was not the arrangement. No, and I think you could tell from it's interesting to hear, but there's uh, you know there's far too much of the organ, and it's you know it's just repetitive throughout the whole song.
2: I think you know when Pete Drake got involved in the tune, it took a whole different flavor. So it, this is not it, sure.
1: Uh, Speaking of Pete Drake, uh, we found a video out there. Bobby Whitlock wants to take credit for bringing Pete Drake into the All Things Must Pass sessions.
2: Right, which unfortunately makes me question some of the other things he said.
1: (laughs) Yeah, like I say, given that uh, in Take 1, George knew that he was bringing Pete Drake in, it's like, uh, that's probably not quite completely correct there. (laughs) Not quite. Okay, track 7 is an old barbershop quartet song from 1929. Those wedding bells are breaking up that old gang of mine.
2: I remember my dad singing this as a barbershop quartet. he, (laughs) he, He was into barbershop music, so I remember I'd never heard Gene Vincent. I'd never heard that version.
1: Those wedding bells are breaking up that old gang of mine. Paul was also familiar with it. And I remember thinking of it like army buddies. We, we, one of the songs we used to love in the past was Wedding Bells. Those wedding bells are breaking up, that old gang of mine. And this idea that you've been army buddies, but one day, you have to kiss the army goodbye and go and get married and act like normal people. It was a bit like that for the Beatles.
0: We always knew that day had to come.
2: Right, kind of a joke tune, but he clearly knows it. <laughs> they did kind of funny, jokey songs, a lot. George in particular, Sheik of Araby and that sort of thing.
1: Three cool cats. And yeah, that.
2: this would have fit right in with that.
1: That old
0: gang of mine, you know, that's all over. Yeah. You know, when I met Yoko, yeah. that that's it. That old gang of mine, it's all over. You know that song. Yeah. Those wedding bells are breaking up that old gang okay. of mine. Well, it didn't hit me till whatever. That was it. The the, the old gang was over the moment I met. her. I didn't consciously know it. Yeah. At the time, but that's what was going on. Soon they met, her that was the end of the, the boys. And it just so happened the boys were well known and weren't just the local right. guy, guys at the
1: bar. The lyrics don't quite translate into the present day.
0: There goes, there goes Jack. There goes Jim, down lovers' lane. Now and we meet again, but they
1: don't seem the same. The two guys walking down Lover's Lane, the implication being that they're walking down Lover's Lane with their girls, but <laughs> the way it comes out, it's like, they're walking down Lover's Lane with each other. It's like, uh, okay.
2: <laughs> well, you know, baby.
1: It's just, you listen to it, it's like, wait, what? Oh, no, no, no Okay. I got what they mean. Yeah. In particular since the next line is, it's not like it was before. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, that, that could be taken either way.
2: <laughs> right. Interpreting things from the a present point of view of old ideas can be dangerous <laughs> or misleading.
1: Definitely the latter. But this is as close as this disc gets t- to John's sessions disc the the jams and sessions disc picking up something random from the past and breaking into it
2: right this also may indicate what some of those discs coming from let it be are going to be like them running through songs that they knew
1: that's very much what the entirety of the january 1969 sessions are is when they're not working on their own material that's what they're doing they're seeing what they can remember yeah They were still thinking, oh, well, we're going to go up on stage and play this. What can we pull back that we know we can play live?
2: Right. One of the many ideas floating around, that they'd be the the caverns group again, basically, and play their stuff and and old things, too.
1: Yeah, although pretty quickly they realized that, uh, no, we cannot go into the cavern again. It's always seemed pretty amazing to me that April of 63, they did a cavern show. The last cavern show was that light.
2: No, I wasn't talking about physically going into the cavern. I just meant recreating that band. You know, they had gone through this whole career and they were going to kind of take that get back to what they were, which was this little club band. And they discussed at one point, you know, having the same kind of PA is that and recreating that the whole idea was kind of fluid. And they included some ideas of even doing some old Beatles songs. You know,
1: help. Well, love me do. And right. they do a line of please, please me. And <laughs> right. Very few of them got as far as even being seriously attempted.
2: Yeah. That footage that I've seen of, of McCartney playing please, please me just seems like at that point is when they decided No, we aren't going to do that.
1: Round!
0: (laughs) Last night I said these words
1: too. Last night I said these words too.
0: My girl.
1: Well,
0: we'll have to do is sitting down. Oh, yeah. Or we get too excited.
2: (laughs) I know he was joking, but you think of where in particular John and George were as people at that point, they were not going to go play. Please, please. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, I've always found it a a little bit amazing that John did dizzy miss Lizzie in Toronto.
2: I think they were short of material
1: struggling for what everybody in the band knew. Yeah. What do you know? But still, as far as the Beatle ties, it's like, Oh, well, gee, that's kind of interesting that John would even think of that as a possibility. (laughs) Right. Track eight is uh, take one of What is Life? Right. And this
2: is the one that I was talking about. I like his vocal enthusiasm and the edge on his voice. And even as the song is reaching its conclusion, you know, he changed the melody. The final record is just a repeat, almost note for note, from the last. But he changes the melody around as he includes the song and all of his choices are like, well, that's cool. I like that. So I really like this version.
1: Well, that had always been a Beatle trademark. I mean, you he, Paul does the same thing in Drive My Car. Yeah,
2: for sure. And maybe he was just going against the Beatle trademark. But, you know, I like what he chose and the guitar that is in the end song isn't in this. And it still works.
1: Neither the lead nor the fuzz have come along yet. Right. I would say that this is more of a pop arrangement. George was thinking maybe hit single with it.
2: Who doesn't like a hit single?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not a way I would have thought of uh, what his life before. Yeah, but I like it. It's interesting to, to see that this is what was in between. And you can see the pieces that he did take on to the final record. Yes.
2: There, there's actually a walk down on his guitar that prominently is in the final song which you could see from the tone of that guitar how the other things could be worked out using that as the basis the sound was there
1: track nine is take eight of beware of darkness yeah
2: ominous (laughs) it's even more ominous than on the album i think
1: the thing that i noticed was there's a lot more of clapton's guitar and it's a lot more to the fore
2: well you know before you have all the other stuff with all its reverb, there has to be something that kind of carries the song and that and his guitar is kind of what's there. It certainly gets dialed back if the final mix.
1: Yeah, I mean not even half of it make it audibly into the final record. You know, I'm sure they're there. I'm sure Clapton's playing is still if not the same, at least a very similar pattern throughout the whole song. Right. Otherwise this one comes up as being Fairly similar, a bit darker, a bit more ominous, as you say, but it's still fairly similar to the finished record, I think. Yeah, it's the Minus Spectre and his wall of sound. Yeah. Next up is a somewhat controversial track, the 9 minute and 31 second version of Hear Me Lord, uh, Take (laughs) 5.
2: Definitely working it out.
1: How much of this do you think they ever actually intended to use? I
2: don't know. Hard to know what their thinking was, and it might have just been one of those things where you just continue on from the recording.
1: Yeah. Which the Beatles did. I mean, uh, you got the end of something, which, you know, just sort of becomes John's a vamp. Right. And then you got the 10 minutes at the end of uh, revolution one, which became revolution nine. Right. They would frequently sort of just let things go. And I think that's what was going on here.
2: And there was a 27 minute version of *Helter Skelter. So
1: this is true. Although, uh, I think that would may have been a slightly different thing. I don't think that was just a take which ran on because you got the one that's 14 minutes. I think they were just trying to figure out how long do we want this final song to be. <laughs> it could be four minutes. It could be eight minutes. It could be 15 minutes. But where's a good stopping point?
2: Well, with the 27 minute version, the stopping point would be the end of the tape.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, there's probably about. Four, four and a half minutes where George is singing that were intended to be in the song. Yeah. And then, you know, after that, you know, they just keep it going and, and they may be again looking for parts. It's like, oh, I like that. You know, maybe we should pull that and put that back in at the 50 second mark.
2: Extra skin to put in. To me, it's just continue on with the song. You know, maybe he had an idea of making it big, like, is it a pity or something, you know, huge something.
1: Track 11 is uh, the first take of Let It Down. Take one, four minutes and 13 seconds. It's very definitely less intense without the specter and the horns in there. It's very much a piano-dominated version of the tune. Yeah,
2: you know, it's an interesting take on the song.
1: Yeah, I can hear Billy Joel covering this version of the song.
2: Yeah, it was fun to sit and listen and just kind of listen to that part the way it changes uh, all through. There's
1: more of the drumming. It's really good. It's really interesting drumming, I think. Yeah. And again, when you're just listening to the drums, you hear how well they were recorded. And it's like, oh, wow. It's kind of sad that Spectre lost all of this in favor of the wall of sound.
2: Yeah. As you probably have gathered, I'm not a big fan of it. (laughs) It could be a, a different album. As a matter of fact, I, I, probably intend to do a, a mixtape with the takes that I really like. Because it's kind of a different album. The same, but different.
1: I think a lot of the energy of the final record comes from Spectre. And some of that is, is artificial energy. I mean, some of that is, oh, I've had too much candy and I'm bouncing off the walls.
2: <laughs> That's a good description.
1: Whereas in, in some of those instances, you might be better served by either just going for the natural room energy like you get here or just the plain singer-songwriter thing that you get on the day one and the day two.
2: Right. Well, the next song is, to me, just like, oh my gosh, who did this to this song? (laughs) Run of the mill.
1: Before we get to it, I do just want to mention George's woo in there. (laughs) That just makes me laugh every time (laughs) I hear it so okay yeah run of the mill take 36
2: yeah and what did they do to that great song it's over busy it's a bit rushed and i don't know where it fits in all this because that wonderful guitar work that is in the final version surely was the early version of this i mean it's just so part of that tune and this is like you took this song i mean was this supposed to be radio friendly it, it's just an odd thing.
1: Yeah, I think that's what he's shooting at. Although, I do like the guitar, the opening and the closing of the song. It's not quite enough to carry it all the way through, but I, but I like what he's playing there. I like the sound of it. Okay. That's just me.
2: <laughs> right. Well, I agree to disagree. I don't know. I, when I heard it, and of course, they released it early, one of the first things I saw, and I thought, oh my God, what is this? This is bizarre. So, this is the most bizarre thing to me on, on the entire thing. I don't know where it fits. It's What take is it?
1: Uh, that is take 36.
2: Yeah, so, was down the road. It's been arranged. You know, I, I just don't get it. It's too fast. You think about, again, the guitar parts. And you think about the, the tone
1: of the lyric. It's just... That's a complete mismatch. Yeah. But I like the guitar part. I, you know, I don't like, necessarily like the guitar part with these lyrics, but... I do like the guitar part.
2: Right. When I first heard it, I thought that it was possibly something in 2000 when they did My Sweet Lord and remixed I Live For You and all that that maybe they had kind of mucked around with run of the bill. Because it just doesn't sound like part of this.
1: Nope. It's something that they were considering. But, I mean, again, they agreed with you and that the final version is the better version of the song. So say we all. <laughs> now, if you say that's the weirdest track, I, I got to go with the next one. Uh, down to the River, the Rocking Share Jam. What the heck is going on here? Well,
2: you know, clearly an early influence song. I don't know. I mean, I put it on a CD in the car, and that's what we've been seeing now for the past week or so.
1: You know? <laughs> George obviously liked the tune. He, he brought it back for Brainwashed.
2: <laughs> right.
1: Where it became Old Rocking Share in Hawaii. Uh, although the yodeling is gone. <laughs> oh, man. That's the funnest part to see. <laughs> That's one of the other weird things that Danny did to hear. You know, we've had at least some of this song on bootleg before. Danny replaced the yodeling at the beginning with yodeling from another part of the song. <laughs> interesting it's not like George screwed up the yodeling or was having a problem with his voice but it's uh, no I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna swap out this six seconds for another six seconds of George yodeling that's
2: funny I I hear this song is being directly connected with Devil of a Deep Blue Sea you know there's this feel that there's a kind of song that George likes from his younger days
1: yeah I could see that and I, I like the horns you know that's kind of a lot of fun.
2: Yeah. I assume those are contemporary.
1: They'd have to be. They did not go in and and re-record anything. It's it's not like the 2001.
2: Right. I mean, it's more than just a jam.
1: They may have pulled a a little bit of love here and mixed something from a couple different takes, but I don't even think that's the case. I I think this is actually just the way it was.
2: Well, we kind of like it. The Stone Household.
1: It's some blues. It's some country. It's George definitely having fun. He gives us a chance to mention our friends in New Orleans. Let's let's hope that they get better quickly. That storm there was a pretty nasty bit of business. Yeah, but we'll hope that uh, things get better for them.
2: Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, it's sad how frequent it is. My people are all in the Houston area, so Harvey came through. It's just, it's just a terrible how often these things happen
1: as far as the song goes you know it's it got a very sort of new orleans feel to it
2: yeah i'd agree with that
1: track 14 is take one of get back
2: i heard bits of this before i don't think i've ever heard the whole version
1: this is actually a shorter version there there is a longer version <laughs> out there there's about another minute out there you know doris troy recorded a version of get back right Which
2: George worked on.
1: Uh, It was on the Doris Troy album, and it was the B-side of the the Jacob's Ladder single. That was recorded before All Things Must Pass, and this is probably something that George was doing for Doris Troy. You
2: think this was, this version?
1: I don't think that this was actually from the All Things Must Pass session. Uh The, The Beatles hadn't had their version of Get Back Out yet, so George was playing, it must have been Paul... Paul going and selling it to her. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that sounds like something I could do. And then then George was in the studio. Okay, tell me how the song goes. And then he just sort of played this.
2: Right. Well, I didn't realize this was not from the All Six was Past Sessions. I am shocked and dismayed. <laughs>
1: we don't completely know. Yeah. The book tries to convince us it's from July, but it's always been credited as something that George was doing for Doris Troy, presenting a guide version of the song for her. Now, which is correct? We don't know. Right. Why would George be doing Get Back in July of 1970?
2: Playing with the band, but, you know, <laughs> playing an old track that everybody might know to warm up. I, I don't really know. I don't know. Is this version like Taurus Troys?
1: Uh yes. <laughs> It is. She takes it a little bit further. I mean, you know, again, she's got a very distinctive vocal style. Yeah. And then George spilled his orange juice during this take. <laughs> yeah. Calls for Mal. Yep. <laughs> Mal got a with another glass of orange juice.
2: Yeah. Well, okay. So it's not for all things was past, perhaps. You bound her, you cheat.
1: What I find uh, amusing is that Get Back is going to be the only song which was on all three of the 2021
2: box sets.
1: (laughs) Because uh, John sort of did a version of Get Back in the Jams 2 versions, wasn't it?
2: I think so, yeah. But the second one was questionable, I thought, because it was really just him playing that
1: guitar tone definitely one of them is almost him trying to play get back yes
2: yes agreed
1: uh, and, and then then there's this and then there'll be who knows how many versions in the get back box
2: <laughs> yeah so
1: 2021 will be the year of get back not just get back the film and get back the project get back the song or, or do you think that uh, they all got together and said hey we got this thing coming out at the end of the year let's let's promote it a little bit these are all subliminals Incredible, they are geniuses. Danny and Sean said, Here's how we're gonna push the box set at the end of the year. Yes, great, right.
2: <laughs> it's funny. That's just a little song to roller coaster by.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, especially because you know, Paul has frequently said that it took him, oh, a good six or seven years to actually appreciate just how big a song Get Back was. Even though it was a hit single, he was kind of like, oh, well, that was just kind of a throwaway.
2: It's a weird time in the Beatles, you know. McCartney had to go back into the studio and remix it after it had been released initially to get it right for radio, I think. So, you know, it was a song that they weren't being guided by George Martin, it was just a weird time for them. He probably didn't even credit it as being like a real Beatles single.
1: (laughs) Track 15 is another 8-minute jam, almost 12-bar honky-tonk, take one. First off, honky-tonk? It's not really honky-tonk.
2: Right. This song makes history in the fact that it's an outtake from an album of outtakes.
1: <laughs> I like
2: that. It's just a band jamming on simple chord progression. You know, some skilled guitar work. But again, I know they played for 8 minutes, but, but still... <laughs>
1: It's long. It's probably as good as any of the jams that did actually make the disc. Yeah. And it, it even possibly is better because, you, like you say, Clapton's playing is spot on. He's on fire. Yeah, yeah. Which he isn't necessarily in Thanks for the Pepperoni.
2: Right. Or even I Remember Jeep. That's not even the
1: song from the album. This is one of the skippers on this disc, but you should listen to it at least a couple times. Yeah. Yeah. If you're in the mood for background music for eight minutes, th- this fits the bill.
2: <laughs> it's kind of like being in a club on any particular Friday or Saturday night in Texas.
1: But you can almost hear the beginnings of some of the stuff that Clapton would do in Layla uh, if you listen real hard.
2: I can't say that I listened
1: to it enough. And I'm not saying that the beginnings of Layla were here. <laughs> right. He's playing some riffs and some progressions that, yeah, yeah, gee, that's kind of like what he's going to do a couple months later. Yeah.
2: It'll make sense, for sure.
1: That may well be why they included it here. It's like, oh, well, that's kind of like Layla. And if we're going to do put on one of these extra jams, then sure, this one will work. Next up is uh, take one of uh, It's Johnny's Birthday, which isn't really take one. I mean, you know, they only did one take, but like, <laughs> really.
2: Right. It's the final version without all the sound effects and the intro Which just kind of like a Monty Python intro and speed variations, but it's the same take.
1: It's nice to have George's clean vocal on it. It's nice to know that they were thinking of John and giving him something for his birthday there. (laughs) Right. the last track on here this was a real surprise to me well you know uh, yeah it it was and a pleasant
2: surprise because i mean for me this is apparently the the closest version to what he originally wrote with a dobro or a, a national or something and it's much more authentic than the release version 78.
1: And this is take five, so they've done four more takes of this. Woman, don't you cry for me.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, there's overdubs on it, and it's just... uh, I think it's a great version. Uh, Certainly one of the ones going on by Mixtape.
1: I like the 33 and a third version, but this does come pretty close to matching it, I think. It's different, but it's almost equally as good.
2: Yeah. You know, this is closer... In kind to Lennon's John Sinclair. It's, you know, just that dobro sound. And it works with the lyric. It's like hearing a, an old blues record.
1: We were talking about George sort of learning the slide guitar just a few weeks before. You can hear how quickly he got to this. Yeah. And while it's not a virtuoso part, you can see it's a very tuneful part, and it's moving very quickly towards what as trademark. Slide style.
2: Yeah, although you know, his slide style is... is more traditional slide, I much, will agree much with Much more fluid. Yeah, this this is like an old... As I said, it's like an old blues record. That's these Those kind of guitar sounds and styles were you know, prevalent in a lot of early blues.
1: All right, brings us to the end, I guess.
2: That's the last song.
1: We have covered everything.
2: That song was a great way to end it. It was a good choice.
1: I mean, really, this set, particularly this last disc points to the future in a couple different ways. I mean, you know, we were saying that several songs have almost a a mid-70s feel to them. Yes.
2: I don't know really what influence this album had on the course of music, but you could see that he he was there. (laughs) He,
1: He could see where things were going without necessarily even releasing songs in that style. Yeah, he record them, and it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I I like this bit, and I like that bit.
2: Yeah, well, good job on George for sure. He, He did a great piece of work with this.
1: The original set is a tremendous record. They have done some nice work on it in coming up with this 50th anniversary edition. Although some people have their complaints,
2: right. I guess it's kind of a question of where things go from here in regards to what is accepted as being the preeminent version. Is it the original Phil Spector versions that will continue to be played? Or at some point, are you getting the 2021 versions? You know, when I listen to Sirius radio, I can tell that they are playing a Sgt. Peppercut from 2018, or whatever it was.
1: They play both, though.
2: They do, but they don't identify them.
1: Yeah, that that is true.
2: So an audience who is coming to this new, they're not even aware of how the original was.
1: I think over the course of a day, I heard the 2021, the Giles Martin, She's Leaving Home. I heard the mono, and I heard the stereo, the original... 67 stereo. And so it's like, okay, you know, as long <laughs> as they're still all around, you know, I, again, I know the difference, but this goes back to what we
2: talked about before, which is, you know, an artist puts out his art. It is really intending to release this other stuff. And so what becomes available down the line influences your audience As to their appreciation of you, or, or, you know, for good or
1: bad. The surround mixes, I would say they are still a minor piece of things in the general, we're going to listen to music.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that.
1: But surround and headphones is very quickly catching up. I think, you know, certainly now on Apple, you can get what they call spatial surround. And as long as you have, the Apple headphones, you will get surround in them and it's pretty good surround. Huh. So is that going to make it that much easier? The reason I bring this up is it has to do with what we're just talking about. The version that the next generation is going to be listening to, it may well be something which doesn't as of yet exist. The surround actually takes its place as the predominant headphone listening version of the, the music.
2: Right. Well, we're, we're all familiar with that scene in Men in Black when he discusses having to buy the White album again, you know, with the new technology. And that's kind of the way it's always going to be a different, uh, perceived as being more modern, way to experience it.
1: But Surround is different. <laughs> I've become a real fan of the various Atmos mixes and the All Things Must Pass Atmos mix, which we haven't bought up. Is tremendous, by the way. Mm. I mean, it's still limited by the wall of sound. It's expanded from something which was primarily intended as a right, left, center stereo mix, right. But they they have still managed to open it up enough that you get you get some interesting pieces that go to the rears and sort of float above you in the atmos mix, right. And so, you know, when people don't have to actually sort of take the disc out put it in the player, turn the turn their system to the Atmos and listen to it. You know, when you just pop in your headphones and hit the button, which is really where we're pretty much getting to on Apple Music. They have not released the Atmos of all things just yet, but you can get the Pepper Atmos. You can get the Abbey Road Atmos and the Let It Be Atmos was released. So presumably that whole mix is going to be available at release I don't know why they haven't done the wide Album yet. Too many songs? <laughs> but nonetheless, my question here is, we're very quickly running on the point where it is as simple as listening to any other mix and you get the surround. I think that might well take off. That might well finally be what's needed for people to listen to surround or, or as they used to say, quad for your four ears. Right. Nothing real important, and I do think that there will very definitely be a much larger audience for the Atmos surround style mixes. The originals will still always be there. Then it just becomes the question of, well, is it mono or is it stereo?
2: Right. Well, uh, future audiences are definitely going to have to research and s- to find that aspect. The the fact that we're talking about this work, you know, 50 years on, and it's clear that it's not stopping here, is kind of amazing. So future generations or audiences are going to come to the Beatles in different ways. Um, And it'll come to a point where you actually have to go, well, you know, I actually got to hear Please 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 Me and Mono on a record.
1: (laughs) Yeah, although Vinyl is having its comeback.
2: Right, but give, so. it, give it another 50 years, and who knows?
1: The original tapes beam directly into our heads, and you can choose the mix you want.
2: Well, you know, one thing that I'm, I'm pretty certain of is that my son will tell his children about the Beatles. So, you know, that'll be the next audience.
1: There's an audience out there. Yeah. It is shrinking a bit as we continue to age, but there is definitely still an audience out there and there's still people coming to it. And the, the millennials really sort of look at have a different viewpoint because when they get to it, they get everything. Yeah. The the history almost comes later.
2: Right. You have to kind of go back to, I mean, you'll never come to it the way it happened because, you know, how could you, you know, start with, the first album and, and work your way through chronologically would take an effort an intent to do that. Most people come to it by osmosis.
1: <laughs> all right. So let's, that's all for the all things must pass. Uh, we got a couple of weeks before we uh, turn to the uh, Ringo EP. So we'll, we'll come up with something for you next week.
2: We'll, we'll do that. All things did pass.
1: <laughs> Alright,
2: so we'll talk to you next week Alright, take care everyone
1: Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher or wherever finer podcasts are found Please join our Facebook group and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim Beast Family Famine Studios San Francisco, California.
0: Do you have any particular tracks on this incredible box set that are really special to you? Or you think... Uh, your well, I mean, uh, one of the things that I heard the other day, I was looking at a little animated video that we're going to bring out, um, which is coming out. I mean, I cried when I saw this and I heard it. It was the slow, uh, the slow tempo version of, uh, of "Isn't It a Pity," and it's the one with Nicky Hopkins playing the really nice kind of riffing piano, and it's just a, it's just a lot slower than the original album version. I thought that just. That just ripped my heart out when I heard that. It sounds just so powerful. Isn't it a pity? That's a wonderfully slow version of Isn't It a Pity, Uh, previously unreleased, but uh, now available on the very special All Things Must Pass box set. I tell you one thing. There's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals but they've got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going.